Hello, this is Paul Bainsfair and this is the IPA podcast. This week we're going to do a little bit of um, crystal ball gazing. Uh, it's always interesting to talk about what might be happening or what could happen in the future. Uh, although it's best to do it with a little bit of data and research. And for that reason, I've asked um, Maeve Quarren, who's the co-owner of the Foresight Factory, to sit down with me and talk about what they think is likely to happen over the coming few years. Um, I grabbed Maeve just after she'd given a fascinating presentation, along with some of her colleagues, to an IPA meeting here at Belgrave Square. So here I am with, with Maeve um, of the Foresight Factory. Um, we've just had a brilliant presentation, um, held all your audience spellbound, talking about some of the trends that you've picked up from your global research. And obviously we were talking about what does the future hold, particularly in 2019. But I suppose the, the sort of burning issue of the day, and you know it's going to go on beyond 2019, but it's a sort of point of maximum sensitivity is Brexit. And I was interested to hear you say that you had been in Dublin, I think, very recently, and had an international audience. So you were able to gauge what the rest of the world was thinking about what we're up to. Could you talk a little bit about that? Indeed. Uh, uh, well, yeah, yesterday, in fact, I was in uh, Dublin, again, uh, with an audience of international marketeers and the agencies that are steering the fortunes of those brands. Um, and, of course, everyone was glued to the press uh, on that sort of 24-hour cycle as it was. But I was particularly getting updates in from, you know, the Irish Times, El Pais, Le Monde, etc., etc., um, and, and just this general almost disbelief um, and incredulity at the uh, uh, shock of what had happened across the international press um, and, and some entertaining headlines to boot. Uh, the Portuguese press, uh, rather unhelpfully, I think, going with uh, uh, uncertainty is the only certainty. Um, uh, altogether more amusing was Le Monde's Theresa May, the shipwreck uh, line, which, you know, is always going to uh, make me do a double take. Uh, any light reference to the Titanic works for me. Um, uh, and just generally, I think the, the uh, I suppose, energy in watching uh, relentlessly what's about to happen next, knowing full well that absolutely nobody knows. Um, and, uh, you know, like us sitting there with bated breath. Um, so very, very lively debate outside of the UK. Uh, just as much as it is here, particularly in Dublin, of course, uh, where there are real uh, issues at stake um, and uh, people are looking for answers and, and they know they're not going to get any uh, in the next 24 hours at least. Yes, and I think the, this, this sort of whole problem of not knowing what's going to happen has made it very difficult for brands and, and advertisers and agencies to, to steer a sensible course. Unless you happen to work on uh, a product or a service that is so obviously in the middle of the problem. I mean, we heard from Tom Pointer, um, who works at Southport, about working on Eurotunnel. Quite. I mean, they obviously have made some very sensible um, plans for all sorts of outcomes. But for what you might call more run-of-the-mill brands, it's very difficult to know quite what to do, isn't it? It is. Um, interesting. I enjoyed Tom's comments about that, actually. And interesting that they're taking the opportunity to... Uh, I suppose have even more dialogue with their clients and their consumers, um, and they're you know having uh, probably a far more uh, two-way exchange, uh, better conversation as a result of the whole problem. And like all of these things, there are always winners and losers, 
and, and bold and smart brands will uh, actually be able to shape uh, perhaps an even more memorable campaign or strategy uh, in spite of Brexit. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't think all uh, fortunes are lost. Um, and I think what it really calls into question for me is, you know, have you figured out uh, who you're really uh, uh, marketing for? Um, what really matters to that particular audience, not just because of Brexit, because of all sorts of trends, and we'll talk about some other ones in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but actually, if you want to get somebody's attention, it's, it's really difficult uh, today. And it's particularly difficult with a news cycle that is constantly distracting. Um, and that's only part of the problem with our you know, uh, ability to garner anybody's attention. So I think we are distracted uh, at the moment. Um, and I think one of the things that brands will with a smart brand in the room will cling on to then is their, uh, you know, have they shaped a strong enough uh, longer term or at least medium term purpose um, and can they stick to that message uh, rather than uh, find themselves waylaid by, uh, you know, the latest turn in the, in the news cycle. And I think, I think that strategy is right. Well, I think you, you've, you've sort of done my job because you've led neatly into uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the, you know, the attention economy. Yep. A better expression. I know you use that. Um, and we also heard in the presentation just about how multi-screening and how the, all of the different media and indeed devices call on our time now um, and how that helps to you know, make life more difficult for brands who are trying to cut through. But you, you gave away some of your thoughts there about how brands might steer away th- their way through this. I mean, is there anything else that we should be thinking about, do you think, in, in a world where people's uh, attention is more and more difficult to, to, to get a hold of? Well, I mean, just to pick up on where you started, we do very much call it the attention economy because I think uh, increasingly people are aware that that is uh, in and of itself a commodity. Uh, there are metrics set against that. There are targets uh, defined for it. Um, and it's a pretty scarce supply. Uh, so a lot at stake for that. And I think it's also part of the current debate because uh, the other real surge that uh, we see just in terms of issues that have gone from what was once perhaps deemed as um, a little bit hippie into the mainstream trendsville sphere is well-being and anything that touches on well-being uh, uh, from whichever angle. And, you know, the question in 2018 was, you know, are, uh, is tech making us sick? You know, are, are, have we lost control? Um, are we all foreshadowing our own uh, uh, premature deaths? Uh, you know, are we screwing up with our children's ability to concentrate? Uh, you know, essentially, uh, have we um, uh, killed off any hope of actually ever being able to hear anyone say anything meaningful? You know, can anyone hear your brand uh, uh, these days? So I think attention and um, unpacking what we mean by that is really, really important as a sort of overarching concept to get to grips with. And, uh, you know, usefully looking at the touch points data this morning gives us, you know, every uh, evidence you could ever possibly need that we are so distracted, uh, multitasking and so on. I think most of the time we can step away from the slightly Armageddon headlines around, you know, is tech making us sick and, and, and back into that sort of positive territory where, you know, largely, I'm always an optimist anyway, but l- largely we do take control, uh, we, we, we do self-correct. Uh, I think anybody that can tap into a message of uh, balance 
um, uh, perhaps quantified uh, amounts of time devoted to anything. I think increasingly we will hear calls for brands to educate people on how much of anything is enough. Uh, you know, there'll be more than one reason that brands are sort of asked to be the moral uh, arbiters of our existence these days in the attention economy is just one of them. Um, and I think the uh, uh, it's interesting, you know, you'll see both sides of that debate, that sort of extreme, you know, I know, consume more or, oh, no, no, absolutely, let, let's pair everything back and go back to basics. You know, that, that'll rumble on in the background. But mostly what we see is it's a really great excuse for brands to remember that unless they really connect with the uh, what really drives consumers, their true passions, what you know, it really matters to any particular audience, then you know, the greatest strategy in the world will come across as just another distraction. Uh, you know, another tactic will be along in a minute. And there are just so many trends to choose from, so many mechanisms that you could um, put in front of a consumer to, to get their attention for a minute. Um, that it's really hard to take a decisive, uh, perhaps more memorable, perhaps more meaningful strategy for people. And actually figuring what that is, it, it, it's not simple. Um, and you know, we, we have some uh, well-trodden advice around that. Um, but essentially, you know, ranking your strategy and looking at really what, what sits as a cut above the rest for any particular audience is, is going to matter more than, more than ever before. Absolutely. And, um, well, there was a great quote, wasn't there, um, in, the, in the presentation when we were talking about consumer experience. Um, I think it was uh, that an emotional connection between the consumer and the brand yeah. is, the, is the true north. Um, and that really touched uh, a chord with me because we've been doing quite a lot of work with um, Lesbian and Peter Field on the importance of emotional brand building in an age where, largely due to the uh, arrival of micro-targeting, clients are seduced into the idea that you know, short-term activation messaging is going to produce more sales immediately, and that maybe they're drifting away from some of that, um, what, we, what we might call the heartland of we, what we've always regarded as brand, brand advertising. So we're doing all our, all our very best, if, if you like, to try and encourage people not to let go of that. And you seem to... You seem to be echoing that in your in your remarks. Oh, most definitely, and I think there's a huge uh, distinction that needs to be drawn between you know really brilliant uh, targeting and connecting with an audience, um, uh, and or as you say, micro uh, targeting and using every possible location and moment to uh, effectively uh, try and get somebody's attention, which we saw again in the data that you know people just find hugely irritating, and that 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 won't work for anything that's sustainable, of course. Um, and, you know, I was very uh, grateful to one of my colleagues for raising the emotional point this morning because uh, most of my uh, uh, co-workers, shall we say, are uh, bemused at the amount with, of, of content that I've put out there on, you know, just how important uh, uh, empathy and emotion is. So I've, I feel like I've been championing that subject uh, dramatically for a while. And of course, just one angle on that is the fact that you know nobody ever remembers really what you did or what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think that absolutely applies to every brand in the in the room. Uh, and I think you'll only make somebody feel uh, uh, something that really keeps them coming back to you if it resonates with something meaningful in their lives. Um, and I think you know the the other thing that I think we see a swell in 
is the measurement of emotions and the tracking of emotions and the reactions of people. And there's all sorts of tech now, of course, that helps us do that, be that facial, biometric, whatever. We're awash with solutions for that to measure our emotions, if you like. But I think that's a little bit crazy too, because that takes us into the territory where you're almost trying to manufacture and you're, you know, inevitably you're pulled to more extreme emotions and exaggeration. And then that starts to lose a grip on what's what's truly meaningful for people too. So I, you know, I, I definitely believe in that um, need to connect with people's emotions. And I think one of the simple ways we can uh, have a sort of guiding North Star on that is just to check in with uh, aspirations. One of the presentations pulled out the... Um, the top are aspirations for people globally. And we track that uh, on an annual basis. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, you see the same uh, and we track, you know, more than 20 different aspirations. And you, you can see actually from year to year a real shift in that, uh, particularly, for, you know, across different consumer groups or different countries or whatever. Um, but, you know, the big things are always important, aren't they? You know, uh, people want to be more knowledgeable, more successful, more creative, etc. But what's really important is the ranking uh, from one, you know, all of these things are important, aren't they? But what's the really, you know, the really, really top two, if you like, for uh, Group X versus Group Y? And that changes. Um, and I think in some of the things we see um, an increasing deficit. So, for instance, one that I, I, de- I just definitely wouldn't have predicted, um, not least because, uh, you know, in this era of uncertainty, you, know, you see a real rise in, well, I better just go it alone and a, and a demand for autonomy and independence. But equally, one of the aspirations where we've seen the greatest jump in, in demand has been sociability. And of course, that's a very emotional place to be uh, also. So the need to be sociable has risen globally by almost 10% in the last year alone. And so again, you know, that brings us back to what really connects us, that, that sense of human to human, uh, you know, we're social animals. Uh, again, very emotional territory for, for, for brands to engage with. And of course, they can use that incredibly usefully in, in all sorts of uh, strategies. So I think yeah, really I think staying in touch a, with that it's a great, In a way, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great paradox of the modern age where social media has, has become such a big thing that the way you engage with it mostly is in a solitary way. Quite. <laughs> um, so you're there on your own connecting with people. But I think it's thrown up this need, and it might be it might have contributed to the data you're seeing, uh, to want to go out and, and, and literally socialise. I mean, there's been yeah. a great upsurge from there in festivals and great meetings of people Indeed. that didn't, didn't seem to be so popular a few years ago. Um, but I want to talk about something. We're going to come back to what people want, their aspirations and everything else, um, in a moment. But I want to also talk about what you've termed the uh, trend of neo-civility. Okay which I think is a, is a sort of a slightly more sophisticated way of looking at, sophisticated way of looking at political correctness, uh, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. Um, and this is very current at the moment, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. Um, in our world, um, we've had a lot of uh, sort of comment uh, for this very recent Gillette, the best a man can get at, which is really putting the whole issue of so-called toxic masculinity um, at front and centre of their communication strategy with varying uh, degrees of success. I mean, some people hate it, some people applaud it, uh, but it's provoked a debate. Um, and what I wanted to talk to you about was um, this sort of, I, su- I suppose, quite a, it's quite a trend, isn't it, uh, for brands trying to identify themselves with the, the kind of fashionable groupthink of the day, whatever that might be. Um, and I'm not trying to d- diminish it, 
it's just to my mind an interesting uh, it's an interesting sort of direction for brands to go in um, well Neil civility I think is something that brands just simply can't ignore any longer and uh, if we were in any doubt about that the wave of data that we've just uh, uh, worked with uh, pretty much put a stop to that and this swell of support for, uh, if you like, monitoring and controlling and an expectation on the part of the global consumer that uh, brands would do something about commentary that, that was deemed to be you know, off kilter for whatever reason is absolutely enormous. Um, so I don't think we can uh, sit on the fence, if you like, on, on, on this one. Um, and it's remarkable because, you know, if you look at, well, let, let's just take Ireland for five seconds, the scale of, shall we say, social change that it has experienced in the last five to ten years, the you know, increasing tendency towards ever more civil liberties, if you like, has definitely been the backdrop. And in many ways, that might be what's provoking some of the, the conversation now. But, you know, you, so you've got that on the one side. Um, and then you've got this call for what is essentially, yes, a bit of a dialing up of uh, uh, PC and dialing down of uh, what is simply freedom of speech. Um, and the swell of opinion rests firmly with the PC camp. You know, m m broadly speaking, uh, far more people are uh, inclined to agree that uh, non-politic commentary should be censored. So we're in a very censorial uh, mood these days. Um, and I think it's interesting because obviously this... Uh, debate uh, mentality has been around for a little while. I mean, we saw it in 2017. We saw it build uh, memorably uh, with Nike in 2018. Um, and you almost get that sort of um, damned if you do, damned if you don't type uh, idea that, you know, brands absolutely, they're going to need to communicate their purpose more expressly. Um, uh, consumers do expect them to stand for something. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, a real difficulty with uh, what it is that they, they, they have permission to stand for, if you like. And that's really, really uh, complex. Um, clearly, you can win with it. Uh, I mean, Nike proved that very aptly. Um, uh, it'll be very interesting to watch how the uh, Gillette experience plays out. But I think the evidence so far suggests that, you know, as long as you've checked that your particular audience uh, sits behind the uh, swell of opinion that you're putting out there, then I think that's a risk uh, that's very strongly worth taking in many instances. Um, you will alienate people uh, with it. There's no, there's no question of that. Um, but it's, a, you know, it's really something you need to study in terms of where, where you sit and, and what your particular populace needs. And, of course, that's really tricky for, say, a brand like Gillette that, that's going to cut across all, all mm. corners of the spectrum and, and, and talk to all people. Nonetheless, it's, it's, it's possible. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because even the panel that we had this morning, um, uh, you know, many of them were on the side of, you've got to absolutely stand for something. And the Brave Band brand goes for that and says it like it is and says what they mean or what their uh, viewpoint is. Um, and just as many, again, saying the opposite, well, actually, no, it's better if you just raise the question and leave it at that. Uh, I suppose my own personal take on it is that's not good enough. Um, and I think... If you don't do that for them, uh, consumers will look for other signs that tell you what side of the debate that you sit on. And in many places, that's going to be obvious. You know, if you're a brand like Patagonia, that's easy to understand. Um, but in other places, you know, uh, a comment from the CEO uh, or another uh, uh, very vocal figure, shall we say, uh, from within the brand 
their personal opinion will overshadow what the entire brand can stand for. We've seen that in the case of Dyson, for instance. Um, and there's some other memorable examples too. So I think, you know, you, you're better off uh, where it's right, shall we say. If, if there's a debate to be had, if, the, if you're sitting on something that is purposeful, uh, where it is tricky territory. I, I, I personally sit with the view that, yes, it can be successful. Um, uh, if you don't sort of shape what side of that debate you're on, someone else will do it for you. And I think there, there will be more cries for um, a, a, an opinion laid out by the brands that, that uh, navigate our lives uh, uh, rather than less. I mean, it is a fascinating area, as you say. And just going back to that Nike example, you, you can sort of deconstruct what went on there and say, actually, this, this, the, the current sort of world we live in, outrage... There's no shortage of outrage, is Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Uh, and you could look at the work that Nike did, know their audience, and say that they were arguably encouraging outrage, and Quite. knowing that that would harden the, their support from their, their sort of core user group, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is an interesting way of, of, of looking at it. Um, when, as you say, you, you come to brands which have a much broader mass market, Quite. in the case of Gillette, yeah. all men, it's much trickier, I would have thought, to, to use that, that tactic. And isn't it funny how such a sort of, one might think at first glance, you know, a strap line like the best a man can be is quite, it's quite neutral, it's quite open, um, and yet the scale of emotive uh, outrage, as you put it, is, is, is likely to be just the same. Um, and, you know, it, just looking at the commentary on Twitter, and I think at this stage they're policing a far more negative swell of uh, commentary than, than not. Uh, uh, and of course, you know, some people absolutely clamouring behind the I'll be boycotting the, the brand. Um, uh, but, you know, let's not listen to Pierce Morgan for any longer than we have to. Uh, but, you know, the, the, I think, I think well, we'll, we'll see. It's far too early to tell. Um, but I think many of the other brands, uh, always is another one, uh, that sort of Me Too uh, movement or uh, standing for, you know, responsible uh, engagement with the broader populace, I think it'll be hard to argue with that for very long. I think there's a huge swell, you know, towards that that generally. Um, and it won't make, you know, other voices or other opinions go away. Um, but I think rather than engaging with that, you know, it, it is a very masculine brand. It has to say something about what it stands for today, in my opinion, at least. Um, and while, yes, uh, the, the, the calls to take it down will carry on, um, I think doing what they think is right for Gillette uh, is, 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 is a very powerful thing. Mm. Um, there's no getting away from the fact that con- controversy will continue to reign. Um, uh, we will see plenty more calls for outrage. But, in, you know, the there's, a, there's an old, I can't remember who said it, but there's an old, um, there's an old uh, saying, isn't there, that if, if you stand for something, some people will be with you. Some people will be against okay. you. If you stand for nothing, nobody will be with you and no one will be against you. Well, this is it, because I think the worst thing you can do is be forgettable, of exactly. course. And you know, back to the attention economy, you've got to do something that uh, creates enough passion. Um, you've just got to make sure that your, your, your people are the ones that hold the passion that you, you, you need to stand with, as it were. Um, okay. Can we talk about... Um, we talked earlier about what are people's aspirations now and, and what are the, what's the sort of zeitgeist out there. And we heard about an upcoming documentary, I think it's going to be called Playing With Fire. And in this context, FIRE is an acronym, isn't it? For, That's right. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Financial Independence, Retire Early. Financial Independence, Retire Early. 
talk to me about that a little bit because we we had quite a session on that, didn't we? And it was um, it was fascinating. It is fascinating, and it is you know we talked actually we saw quite a few extreme angles, uh, and you know you we really are seeing that sort of uh, every aspect of divisiveness come into play uh, in 2019 and that's been building for a while and this is no different so you know another sort of extreme reaction perhaps to some of the trends that we've seen building out there uh, references to independence uh, you know uh, in Brexit mode uh, the desire for planning and control is up uh, we know that consumers have been building an appetite for sustainable living and making uh, the right uh, consumption choices or, shall we say, anti-consumption choices in this instance, um, a reality. Uh, and of course, you know, m- most of the time things don't change that dramatically. Um, but this particular movement is, is uh, rising in terms of its, its, its calls for action um, and certainly in terms of its global reach because it's travelled from... Uh, it's uh, standing start in the States to quite an international audience at this station. It's present in, in many, many markets. So I think we will see people take an interest in this. Um, and it paints a picture of, uh, effectively, you're on your own. Uh, and that, you know, that sort of naked citizen territory, if you like, is something that has huge appeal here in, in the UK. The vast majority of subscribe, uh, consumers subscribe to that. So you know, you've got to plan for your own uh, independence at all times. Um, and it's just that they're laying out more extreme steps to, to get you there. So uh, putting away uh, uh, 50 uh, or an excess of 50% of your annual salary in order to be able to profit from that at a later point. It, yeah, so uh, you, you know, have to, I think you have to save 25 times your annual expenditure. Quite. That's another metric they've, they've got. Uh, absolutely. It? I mean, all luxury consumption is definitely out the window. Indulgence yeah, is absolutely yes, bad. Much you, more austere kind of world. Yeah, calls for mobility and, you know, you move to where the money is, um, but definitely don't buy anything along the way. You know, quite quite extreme. And, of course, you know, some, some But with people, the aim of getting somewhere where you are With the aim of getting somewhere. A- yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of ironic, really, because obviously what, what are you going to do then when you retire? Then you'll be able to enjoy the spoils of all that non-consumption that you've been... <laughs> <laughs> Pre- preaching effectively for the better part of what will be 20 years but uh, never mind that for just a second um, you know I think I think it, it it taps into people's fears that they're not going to be able to survive successfully and I think you know that's the extreme end of the argument and we'll you know we'll watch the documentary it'll almost certainly gather a little pace but I think generally speaking it's more interesting from that broader mindset which is that of the prepper mindset you know you've got to be ready for every eventuality and, you know, whether it's Brexit um, or whether it's, you know, uh, divisive debate, uh, that sense of, we don't, you know, we don't quite know what to do next. And, and so we need to plan for that. Um, and, you know, there's a flavour of disruption around every corner. And if it's not coming from the political spectrum, it'll be coming from the tech. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of the robots are coming after your career. You know, you can see a huge... Uh, demand from consumers to plan better for their career and again if you look to the aspiration data you see more evidence for people wanting more knowledge uh, uh, you know routes to how to be successful uh, the the call for the educator brand to step into the arena I mean it's everywhere it's it's literally everywhere so you know it's not really surprising that uh, an extreme documentary like fire is going to get some airtime because it definitely touches sensitive chords that are on everyone's agenda today well we'd say everyone um, it is absolutely everyone because I'm I don't know if you picked up on this but a few months ago 
there were some reports in the British press about property prices in Auckland, in New Zealand. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. So, from uh, in very short space of time, like the last sort of 18 months, property prices have risen six times in, in Auckland. Uh, what the hell's going on, you might ask? It's now as expensive to buy a, an apartment in Auckland as it is in Manhattan or central London. And it's been driven by lots of very, very wealthy Asians and Americans, lots of people are already successful, who, are, who have seen it as a sort of ultimate bolt hole. You know, when, when everything else goes wrong with the world, it's far enough away from everything to, to, for them to believe they could actually just decamp and go into there. Apparently that's what's driving them, because once it starts, they will follow. But um, maybe you're right, it's everyone. It's a, it's a basic need we have, not just something that ordinary people feel. Well, look, Maeve, we've, we've had a good half an hour talking um, and uh, I normally set the limit at 25 minutes, so it was so interesting we had to go over. But um, thank you so much for sharing some of those with us. And if anyone doesn't know about the Foresight Factory is listening to this, I suggest you, you get in touch. Thanks, Paul. Lovely to be here this morning. Thank you. Thanks. So there you have it, a few predictions about the future from Maeve Quarren and the Foresight Factory. This has been Paul Bainsford and this has been the IPA podcast.